Should we pray? So we can look at God's word together just for a few minutes. Should we pray? Father God, now just as we come to look at your word, Lord, we pray that you would bless the bits we read. Lord, bless the words said about it. Father God, we would all hear what you need us to hear. That Father God, my words may be honouring to you. And that Father God, only from you as well. That Lord, you would anoint our hearts and our lips and that Lord, we would hear what you're saying. And even if, Lord, um, you need to say things that are, are, don't come from these lips, Lord, that our hearts would hear your spirit speak clearly. The things we need to hear. Father God, move amongst your people. Work in your people now, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm a fairly normal chap. I don't know why you laughed then, definitely. Anyway, um, we won't dwell on that. Um, but uh, I quite like a good film. Uh, and, uh, and so if you're looking for a good film, do not ever watch Batman versus Superman. Rubbish. I'm sorry, does anyone like it? Seriously? You liked it? It's not a good film, Ethan. It's awful. It's, one of the, it's, it's an hour and a half of my life I'm probably never going to get back. And uh, anyway, the, the, nut, the story, nuts and bolts of it is Batman's a bit upset. He had a bit of a cry. And he gets upset with Superman decides to kill him. Anyway, long story short, he, he sort of doesn't. But somebody else kills him. But he sort of isn't dead. But it's a long story. Very boring. Don't worry about it. You're not missing much. Anyway, apart from the fact it's a fairly awful film, there is a main uh, baddie, for want of a better word, like I'm 12 years old. This isn't Batman or Superman for the uninitiated. Shame on you if you don't realise. This is Doomsday. And, uh, I mean, the kid had no chance, did he? If you name him Doomsday, he's never going to end up... He's never going to work for the bank, is he? Anyway, bless him. So this is Doomsday. He's a genetically modified kryptonite man. But that's irrelevant to the point I'm making. Let's move on. I'm getting distracted by Batman versus Superman. Perhaps it wasn't that bad after all. Perhaps it wasn't that bad after all. I'm sort of, I'm sort of re-enjoying bits in my mind as I speak. Anyway, the thing about... Where's he gone? The thing about um, Doomsday, the fact that he, he, he vanishes at will, is that he, uh, he had a particular ability to uh, absorb whatever was shot towards him and make him stronger. So as uh, Superman did that laser thing with his eyes, he just sort of absorbed it and came back slightly tougher. Batman with his strange suit would throw missiles at him, and he just got tougher and tougher and tougher. And it must have been a rubbish film, because I found myself wondering, wouldn't it be brilliant to go through life and be a bit like Doomsday? Not Batman or Superman, but that's, uh, that's the last thing I'm going to say on the film. But wouldn't it be good to be able to go through life, trials, tribulations, hardships, and as they hit you, wouldn't it be good if they actually had the, ne- the reverse effect and actually make you tougher, make you stronger, rather than weakening you? We tend to think that when things go wrong, that what they're doing is weakening us, and sort of killing us, I guess, in one way. But actually, wouldn't it be good to be a bit like this wonderful man behind me and, uh, and absorb the things that he can, he can go now, actually, um, but, and actually make you stronger? And for the Christian this morning, actually, that is kind of what happens. That God in his sovereignty is able to take our suffering and use it as an opportunity to grow us and make us stronger. Not physically, sadly, uh, but in terms of our faith, which is more important actually than your physical strength. We, we pump iron, don't we, to be strong physically, but actually your faith is what's strong. That's what you need to work on, actually. You should be reading your Bible twice as much as you go down the gym, if you're a regular gym goer, because it's your faith that saves you, not your muscles or your flat stomach or whatever you've got. But the point is, actually, when we allow God into our suffering, I believe God, in his sovereignty, is able to use those, even the worst times, to make us stronger through the things we go through. A friend of ours, and I won't tell you who she is, not that she comes to this church, but has gone through in this last year the most horrendous time in her life and she's heartbroken her life is 
completely changed and it will be forever. Life will now be difficult for her until the day she dies. But our friend, who is a very godly person, has allowed God into her suffering. And by that I mean, you know, sometimes when things go wrong, we sort of say, well, I'm annoyed with you, Lord, I'm going to keep you over there. And when I'm better, then maybe we'll talk. Maybe I'll come back to church. Maybe I'll read my Bible. But she is letting God in. She's allowing God to walk with her as she cries, allowing God to hear her frustrations, allowing God to, to, she reaches out to him in her lowest moments. And she is one of the most wonderful people I think I've known because she's allowing God in. And she is so gracious and tough and strong, brokenhearted, weak and hurt. But at the same time, there's a strength in our friend that's quite wonderful to see because she's letting God into her suffering. And that's something that I want to speak about this morning. We're looking at the book of James. If you've got a Bible, hopefully you do. Um, the book of James is in the New Testament just after Hebrews. We looked at it last week. Last week we talked about the relation between faith and deeds and how if you've got faith, you should show up by what you do. Um, it's not very good just saying, I believe in Jesus. Even the devil says that. We said that last week. Actually, you've got to show your faith by what you do. That's how you prove you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And this book, James, that we've got, and we're only having two weeks on it because it's Advent next week. Anyway, um, it's a very popular book. It's popular because it's practical. It's almost like a, a selection of Proverbs. Um, and it's very clear, very to the point. Um, most people agree that the man that wrote James was probably Jesus' brother, um, there's lots of theories, but the main, most people seem to agree that they reckon that the person that wrote the book of James is Jesus' own brother, earthly brother. Um, and actually, something really struck me, which is not particularly related to what I wanted to sort of say this morning. But verse 1, um, and we're going to go through these first 18 verses of chapter 1, I should tell you, uh, in the next few minutes. But verse 1, this is how James introduces his letter to these scattered Christians. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, hands up if I've ever told you this time I saw David Beckham in Toys R Us. Have I ever told anybody a story? A few of you may have put your hand up. I'll tell you a story. It's the only story I've got of a famous person. Because whenever I say, if someone says, oh, I, I saw someone famous, well, once I saw David Beckham in Toys R Us. And I name drop because that's the only thing I've got that's interesting to say. But James, the brother of Jesus, as he writes his letter, calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. And as I, it just really struck me this week how humble he is because I'd be there saying well my brother of course when he did the uh, walking on water miracle and my brother what you don't know about my brother was when he was 12 this is what happened in our house I'd be, I'd be dropping names every five minutes I mean he could have potentially have used that relationship to abuse his position in the early church couldn't he well the brother of Jesus I should be you should listen to me what do you not know but James refers to himself as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and I just think humility is a, di- a quality dying out in the modern 21st century. We love people that attack. We love leaders and we love people in authority who push everyone down and you're fired and things like that. And actually humility is a quality that we as Christians should be exhibiting in all circumstances. I want to read to you a few verses from the New Testament about humility. It's so easy to be arrogant. It's so easy to be self-serving, isn't it? But God calls us to put other people first. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. Paul says... Uh, says this, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. It's a very different way of living to how many people in the world live. Be completely humble. Never put yourself first. Never arrogantly tell everyone how wonderful you do. Do you ever find yourself saying, well, you know, I'm ever so busy this week. This week I've done this, this and this. I haven't got time to do that. You know, I do a lot of work for charity, um, whatever it might be. We're very good sometimes at being humble, yet secretly telling everyone how wonderful we are. 
Humility is a really important characteristic. If, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 11 um, says this. No, no, verse 3. Okay, I need glasses this morning. It's terrible. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. That really is countercultural stuff. If Christians live like that, there will be hardly anybody in poverty that we knew. There will be hardly anybody that was broken that we knew because we would think your need is far greater than mine. You can have my stuff. You can have my time because you're more important. If we live like that, how radical would us as a Christian community be? And then one more. Philippians chapter um, 11, verse 2. Not Philippians, uh, Proverbs. Oh dear, sorry. Um, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom, which is a good link. I always remember the, the joke of the woman that goes to church one Sunday morning and she says to the vicar, do you know what I don't think I've ever sinned in my entire life? He goes, really? And she says, yep, not once have I ever sinned. He said, nothing, you've never sworn? Nope. Never lied, no, never cheated. Really? Wow. I bet you're really proud of yourself. And she says, yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway. <laughs> bless you. <laughs> That's a ripple slowly from the front. Anyway, so the book of James, um, moving on from that. The situation he's writing to is Christians who have been scattered. They were once in Israel, Jewish Christians from a Jewish background who have found their Messiah. Possibly around the time of Acts chapter 8 when persecution came they were scattered around the, 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 the nation of Israel and they find themselves in a situation which is revealing their uh, cracks in their faith that we talked at last week. Also, there's some persecution, there's some trials, there's some tribulations that are going through. And in chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, which we're going to just sort of go through verse by verse, there are two themes that are connected. The first is spiritual integrity or spiritual wholeness, maturity, you might say, and perseverance or endurance in times of difficulty. And in the uh, chapter 1 of James, he connects those two together. James is a really hard book to get a sort of an outline together because it's sort of that, that saying and that topic and he seems to just sort of go like this without any thought about structure. But in these first 18 verses, he link, he's linking persevering in difficult moments with growth spiritually. And actually, that's a truth that we need to remember as Christians. Actually, sometimes you grow your most when you stick at it the most. When things are going wrong and you hold on to God, that's actually when you grow in your faith in Jesus Christ. And so James begins this letter with a very strange opening phrase. In verse 2, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, I don't know about you, that strikes me as kind of insensitive. If he's addressing Christians who are struggling or perhaps being persecuted for their faith or struggling with something they've got to really endure and persevere through, the first thing you don't do to that person is say, brilliant, you're so blessed. You must be so happy that life is tough. And yet this is how James begins his letter. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. What an odd way, what an insensitive way to start a letter to a bunch of struggling people. But what he's not saying is that they shouldn't feel sad. He's not saying they shouldn't be upset. He's not saying they shouldn't shout and say, God, what are you doing? What's happening? That they shouldn't question and worry and be honest with God. What he's saying is, what you need to realize, my brothers and sisters, is that your pain is an occasion that can be a time of blessing. A time of genuine rejoicing, not in the pain you suffer, 
but because what God's going to do during your suffering will be quite wonderful. Will be quite wonderful. And that actually, as you see something bad coming on the horizon, rather than thinking, oh, this is going to hurt, you can actually think, hallelujah, because I know God is going to meet me at my most darkest moment. And he has the sovereignty and the ability to take that pain and make something wonderful out of it. No one else on the planet can speak like that except followers of the living, sovereign, good God who made everything out of nothing. No one else on the planet. They can say, I hope I get through it. But only Christians can say God can do something good in it. It's a hard thing to say. I recognize that. Some of you have been through really hard things. But actually, if we let God into our suffering, he can craft beauty. What are the trials that they suffer? Well, if you were to go to verse 13, right way down, it says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. It says, But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Recognize the pathway of desire. Temptation and desire and action always leads to death when we go against the things of God. But they're suffering with temptations. I had a story of a, a couple, a young couple went shopping. They didn't have very much money. And they went to a shop and the woman, the wife, needed a dress. And he said, you go in and get your dress, but don't spend too much money. We haven't got any money. We've hardly got any cash. A cheap dress. She said, no worries. About half an hour later, he met her as she came out of the shop wearing a 500-pound dress. He said, what on earth happened? She said, well, temptation came. And I just couldn't resist it. And he said, well, you know what I do when temptation comes? I say, Satan, get behind me. And she said, that's exactly what I did. And he said, well, what happened? She said, well, he said, it looks brilliant from the back. (laughs) Anyway. So they're suffering temptations. We suffer temptations as Christians all the time. Non-Christians as well. Every day. It's It's exhausting, isn't it? You think that thing, I still keep doing it, still keep thinking it, saying it, whatever it is, all the time. They're suffering with that. They're suffering poverty as well. First line, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. Some of these Christians have nothing. Some of them have lots. Verse 10. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will all pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms falls, blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away, even while they go about their business. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, he says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man, filthy old clothes, also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here's a good seat for you. He says to the poor man, You stand there or sit at the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my brothers and my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he has promised those who love him? But you are dishonored, but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him? to whom you belong. So the rich in their situation are, are blaspheming their faith. They're dragging them into court. They're not being very nice. They're treating them badly. Verses 15 to 17, he gives a hint again that there's a poverty in the church and there's an oppression from the rich. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes 
uh, or daily food. If one of you says, go in peace and keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about it, about it what good is it? Again, that hint that there's poverty amongst their community. And that poverty um, perhaps has come from religious persecution. In chapter 5, he speaks of the rich withholding wages. They're suffering religious persecution as well. I've just read that chapter. It's the rich that oppress you, the rich that blaspheme your faith. So they're suffering temptation, poverty, and religious persecution. And actually, I've got a picture behind me. I went on the internet this morning. And this morning, uh, these are the headlines from a group called the Barnabas Fund. And that's just this morning. I just got the news up. This is the 20th of November. Hindu extremists attacking Indian Christians. Chin Christians stripped of refugee status. And um, I forget what they're back to. Um, district governor in Laos uh, orders Christian families to leave village or be in prison, I think that says. British Muslim politician resigns um, over Asaya Babi's sake, uh, the um, Pakistani lady who's seeking refuge somewhere. We won't take her in this country. She's going somewhere else. At the bottom of Jakarta mosques, encouraging Indonesian government workers to join Islamic State. More than 40 slaughtered in an attack on Christian mission. Um, and then Algerian authorities seal village church over health and safety. Well, under the banner of that, but persecution. And you can see, that's just one of the eight things that you could look at this morning. Your brothers and sisters across the world have been persecuted for their faith. Nothing has changed since the time of James. And yet James would say to them, consider it pure joy. When that happens, consider it pure joy because in those scenarios, God is going to meet you. God is going to be with you. God is going to be there in it. And how can it possibly be cause for joy? Um, but it's true to say, isn't it, that some of the most together people are those who have been through hard times. Sometimes going through a difficult time can reveal actually what's important about life. You imagine you're the, the man or woman that is ignoring his family or her family because you want the big promotion at work. I'm not dissing all of that. But let's just say that's the scenario you're in. You really crave that top job and you work every hour God sends you, every single day, but you neglect your family. And then you don't get it. Well, you have a heart attack on the way there. And you think, well, what was the point? This is what matters. Stuff it. Maybe it re- reorientates your priorities for life. Sometimes it can give people determination to live right when things go wrong, can't it? I'm going to live my life better. But what James is talking about is something far more wonderful, a deepening of faith. And from verse 3 and 4 of James, having said uh, about um, finding joy in trials, he says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance and let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and lack and not lacking anything in other words if you let God in when you suffer he will mature you and grow you and you will lack nothing spiritually on that spiritual sense and the the word there is about a crucible if you take gold and silver they put it in a, a hot furnace don't they and the impurities rise to the top and they're wiped away And this is what James is talking about. In the crucible of suffering, God removes the impurities from our faith and from our life. And that is how God works in his people. Trials often remind us to rely on God in a way we never did when we were comfortable. And it's actually a wonderful place to be in, hard as it is, because it hardens our faith, deepens the roots of our trust in God. And faith is what moves mountains, isn't it? Not us in our strength. He says in verse 4, you'll lack nothing to mean spiritual maturity. Because isn't it true that it's comfort that kills us? Isn't it true that it's comfort that is killing this world? It isn't trials and tribulations that often brings the best out of people. 
and it brings the best out of God's people because we take him seriously. We rely on him, but it's comfort that kills us. Think of Cain and Abel right back in Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Didn't Cain have a perfect, almost perfect world, unspoilt to enjoy? And yet he became so conceited, so angry, so jealous, he killed his brother. This is why James commands them to find joy. He says it's time you change your thinking and see your suffering as an opportunity to experience God in a way you've never done before. And maybe this morning we need to do the same. Change our thinking. Not think, Lord, when's it going to stop? Not say, Lord, when are you going to be with me more? I want more of you. Verse 12, he's going to come back to this same theme. It says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. If we persevere, our faith grows, and then one day we will be in glory with him forever. I'll play you a short video, and this is called Modern Day Saviour. And someone's made a video, and they've put Jesus in the 21st century, and, uh, and he's talking to people in our situations, in suffering. I am here. I have not gone away. I'm not dead, nor retired. Just like thousands of years ago, I am in your midst. I look at this world full of evil, at people tired of sorrow who cry, there is no God. They have turned away from me. They say they don't see me, but their eyes are closed. They ask why they don't hear me, but they've covered their ears. But I stand there, at their doors, every day, every minute, and in every situation of their lives, untiringly. Why don't you want to let me in? I'm here. I'm near. I see your suffering. I hear the silent cry for help, and I feel your pain. If you're honest, you've made mistakes. You do bad things, even when you don't want to. Infected with sin, Anger, fury, irritation, distrust, cowardice, betrayal. That's why I came. I came to the earth to give you new life and new hope. There was a price for your sins. Death. And I paid it for you. I love you. I died so that you wouldn't die. And I rose again so that you could live. I stand with open arms. And I will wait for you till your last breath. And this is kind of what James is saying. That Christ is not far from the brokenhearted. And if we trust in him, he can build when everything seems broken. And so he carries on in this chapter Um, And he says something very strange in verse 5. You may not have ever picked up on it. He talks about perseverance, finishing its work. You'll be mature, you'll be complete, lacking nothing. And then he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously without finding fault, and it will be given to you. What a strange thing to say, having uh, having told everyone to stand tough when things go wrong. He then suddenly changes subject and says, if you lack wisdom, ask God and he'll give it to you. What's the link between wisdom and enduring in times of trial? In Jewish literature... They linked wisdom of God, knowing God, the wisdom of God, with enduring suffering. To know God wisely 
was to help you endure suffering and hard times. And even James links it with his wording. He says in verse 4, you'll be mature and complete, lacking, not lacking anything. And then he says, if any of you lacks wisdom. The answer, the first step to enduring hardship isn't to ask God for more strength, actually. The first step to enduring trials isn't to say, Lord, give me more strength. Because you haven't got any in the first place. We never had any strength. God's got it all. It's an illusion when we think we're strong. The first step to enduring hardship is to ask God for more wisdom. And a strange thing to say there is, what's the difference between wisdom and knowledge? Knowledge is knowing about something. Wisdom is about knowing what's true, what's right, what's everlasting. Somebody put it like this. Knowledge is knowing how to use a gun. Wisdom is to know when to stick it in the holster and when to take it out. And when it comes to wisdom and God, Jesus is wisdom personified in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. And actually what James is saying is what you need to survive trouble isn't more strength, but it's wisdom. Wisdom is taking what you know of God and hanging on to what's true about it. Knowing when to apply what bits of knowledge to your situation. Somebody wrote this, wisdom in turn acts properly upon knowledge. Wisdom is the fitting application of knowledge. Knowledge understands the light has turned red. Wisdom applies the brakes. Knowledge sees the quicksand. Wisdom walks around it. Knowledge memorizes the Ten Commandments. Wisdom obeys them. Knowledge learns of God. Wisdom loves him. Knowledge knows it hurts. Wisdom trusts God. Wisdom is about a deepening of your relationship with God. When things go wrong and we say, why, Lord? Wisdom helps us answer that question biblically, correctly, lovingly. And I encourage you, if you're going through a hard time, by all means, pray for the strength of God and refreshing of the Holy Spirit. But ask for wisdom. Ask for wisdom. And we're told in James, he will give generously, he will give to all who ask without finding fault. Ask for wisdom so that what you know of God can be applied properly to your situation. And in fact, he makes this point so clearly. He says, when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from God. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. In other words, if you you want to survive the troubles you're going through, you've got to ask and believe that God is going to give you wisdom to know, wisdom to survive, wisdom to persevere. Wisdom is about a relationship, more than just knowledge. And he gives them that warning not to doubt. And then as we get towards the end, verses 9 to 11, he then gives us one more thing to think about when it comes to surviving hard times. It's about perception of your status under God. He says, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. The sun rises with scorching heat and withers, and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed in the same way the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. James is saying if you want to really get through life, you need to know who you are under God. Rich or poor, you need to know your need of him and your trust of him and walking under his sovereign hand. Only then, verse 13 to 15, can you survive temptation and trials. One of the problems with the book of James, it's a bit like that. It's quite hard to take one chapter and go, we're going to go here, and then logically we go there, and then logically we go there, and we end here. So how do we end? How do I end? Um, I'm not asking you really. It's a rhetorical question. I've already thought it through. Um, yesterday, this feels a little bit like, this talk feels a little bit like when Tottenham played Chelsea yesterday. 
Oh, sorry, Marco, I didn't see you there. Sorry, that wasn't, um, that wasn't on purpose. That wasn't on purpose. Well, it was on purpose, but not that interaction. Have you all support Chelsea on the subject? No, bless you. No, good. Only one of you. Maybe you're ashamed, so you should be. But in the first half of Tottenham versus Chelsea, it's fair to say Tottenham Hotspur were all over them. On the wide areas, the, the triple threat of Ali, Ericsson and Kane, I won't stay on this for very long, don't worry, um, made them look ordinary. And we scored most of our goals in the first half. Second half, it wasn't so good. that They pulled one back, I think, and, uh, and Tottenham uh, got their third. And so it kind of feels like the first half of this talk, we scored all of our goals. We talked about wisdom, we talked about surviving and, and persevering. And where do you finish? Well, the point that James finishes is the final whistle. When the final whistle blew at, uh, whatever it was, five o'clock, yeah, no, it would have been half past seven yesterday evening, it didn't really matter that the first half wasn't, the second half wasn't quite as slick as the first half. That's just the way the game played out. And, but this is how the, the game finished Tottenham Chelsea with a blow of the whistle and a roar of the crowd. And then this chapter ends with these two, three verses, verse 16. And he says, and this is our final whistle this morning, do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all creation. Having talked about suffering and trials and having at the beginning scored a few goals at the beginning where we just think, yeah, we can persevere, we can grow, brilliant. It all kind of gets a bit confused towards the end of chapter one, but he ends with the final whistle. And the final whistle is everything good you have comes from God. He is with you. He has chosen you. You're a first fruits, a kind of first fruits for the great work he's doing. Don't be deceived. Don't worry. You're going to win the game. And that's the point, isn't it? That when you go through trials, the message of Christ is that when the final whistle is blown, it doesn't matter what the second half was like, you will win. You will be on the victorious side because he will take every kick of the ball and make it a beautiful story. Sometimes we can't see it because we're so in it. But he has an eternal perspective on your life and mine. Let him in your suffering. Persevere when you think I've had enough. And consider it pure joy. Not because you have to pretend you're all right. Because you're all right to not be all right. But recognize and give thanks that even in your worst moment, God can do his best work. And just let him. It's the only way forward. Let's pray. Lord God, we just lift up, Lord, these words to you. Father James is such a fantastic book. Uh, Lord, so many wonderful things. We could spend months on it, really, Lord. And um, there's so many th- more things to, to think about towards the end of the book. But Lord, here we are. We've said what we've said. We give it to you. And Lord, I do just want to. I just want to pray for any here, Lord. And I know, I know, people in this room, Lord, have gone through really difficult things, not just in the last couple of weeks, in the last few months, Lord, and even last few years and father you know the pain they hide you know lord um how sometimes they just say the right thing i'm all right yeah yeah, yes i'm okay and lord we know that sometimes we lie sometimes we put a brave face on it but lord i pray that they would open their hearts to you to their loved ones that they would take that pragmatic step of saying i'm going to find joy in this because i know my god will be near and lord will you be near will you May they they feel your presence in a way they've not felt before. May you teach them the gift of perseverance, the privilege of perseverance. Lord, grow their faith. May some of the people going through the worst time, even now, Lord, be some of the people that have the strongest faith in this church. 
Use them, Lord, and use that faith to move mountains, their own, Lord, but other people's as well. Use them for good in your kingdom. But bless them, heal them. May they be wise, Lord, as they go through this difficult moment. May we all be like that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.